Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, as always, is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, Patch, how are you? I'm good. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. Excited to uh, wrap up this show, which I've loved. Yes, I did too. We've said this before, we'll say it again. We love the show. We're ready to be happy again, though. Yes, (laughs) yes. Just a bit of a downer. Just a little bit. But I will say this as a, yeah, as a spoiler, I, I love the way that the plane landed. I really felt satisfied yeah. in how the story of Chernobyl finishes in this miniseries. And I will also say this just as a confession. I went ahead and binged all the episodes of the podcast. So I can't promise that some data points from the show will come into our conversation, but that'll be okay. I'll try That's not okay. To I, I got so busy these past few weeks that I did not get a chance to binge that podcast. So I will be all ears for some interesting <laughs> facts and information that you cull from that yeah. podcast. You can you can help me. Well, now I've got the pressure on me. So let's hope I yeah. don't screw this one up. <laughs> <laughs> We're in episode five of this mini series entitled Viknaya Pamyat. I hope I said it right. If I didn't, I apologize to everyone who is Russian. It sounds good to me. Okay, <laughs> we'll leave it there. This episode, Adam, really felt a lot like the first in terms of tackling things. It, mm-hmm. Where the first one felt like a great setup. You had episodes two, three, and four that felt very much like a TV show where you had actions and things were going on and lots of stuff really being thrown at us. Now we're in episode five. The big key thing that is happening here is the trial, what happens, and then the big explanation on how we got to 012345. I look at this series as a whole, and I really felt like this episode did such a fantastic job of answering the question, what happened and what happened to the people? Because that's a big question that we've asked throughout this, what's going to happen to the city of Chernobyl? I mean, we know, but we don't know what caused it. And so as a TV show, not knowing all the stuff ahead of time, because this is historical stuff that's happened, not doing that in-depth research, it was so cool in a trial setting to be able to have that discovery, to be able to really have the pieces put together. And this is a credit to the writer who throughout the series is able to explain to us through these characters, through Sherbina, through Legasov, through Kalmyuk in ways that make sense to us. Right. And I think that's so important because in the back of our heads as an audience, we do care about the people, but we really are asking the same question that everybody else involved in this catastrophe is asking, how could this happen? And unfortunately, this episode really is thorough and very clear on how this actually happened. Definitely. Yeah, it's the payoff. We get the payoff in the sense that we get what I think is probably one of the best explosions I've seen committed to film or television. It was such a realistic 
non-CG looking, didn't look like miniature, like a miniature building explosion. They did just a phenomenal job of recreating the actual explosion and letting us as the viewers see it, but not in sort of a really fantastical way where it's like, you know, like if you watch a movie and you see explosions, it's like, ooh, ah, like it's like more, it's like a tragic, it's like seeing a recreation of the Twin Towers being hit or something. It's so believable what you're witnessing and seeing on screen, but it doesn't feel like it's a recreation. It's so well done. Also, I the title, going back real quick, I don't know if the podcast revealed this or not, but I was curious what the title meant, so I looked it up, and apparently it's the title of the song that we hear over the end credits, and it loosely means eternal memory, which is a phrase that is often used during Russian funerals. So it kind of feels fitting that this the title of the song, the meaning of the words, as well as that whole end credit sequence that kind of tells us everything that happened after the events of the series. I didn't know that. I don't know that I remember them talking about the title itself. That may have just been when I spaced out because I was driving, you know, being responsible, a responsible yeah. driver and yes, not listening yes. to a podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe they never mentioned it. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they did or didn't, but I just, out of curiosity, decided to look it up. And yeah, that's apparently what it means, eternal memory. So it's sort of like okay. a way of honoring someone who's been who's been lost. Well, let's talk a little bit about the trial. The majority of the episode takes place either in the courtroom with the show trial, is what they call it, essentially yeah. a trial that it's already been established or apparently has already been established who is going to jail, who's going to get blamed for this. Right. But of course, we get a little bit more than that. And then the trial itself lends itself to giving us these great flashbacks. Um, the episode starts with essentially a flashback. With a flashback, yeah. Right. And a um, little tidbit from the podcast. Craig Mazin, the writer, when he was talking on his podcast, was asked about this sequence the host was saying how appreciative he was that this wasn't the first scene of the series because what it allowed us to do as an audience was to look at this scene nostalgically because we've been sitting with these characters in the aftermath of all of this for the last four and a half, five plus hours. And now we're going back in order to establish the beginnings of that question being answered, what happened? It was so cool to see Pripyat in such a utopian way. I mean, it didn't look amazing, but it looked calm. It looked very serene. It looked very much like a place that was just kind of whimsically moving about. And we see the characters that we've grown to connect with, Vasily's wife being one. One of the things that surprised me is the motive behind getting this test done that ultimately it came down to these men wanting to get promoted. Right. They were like jockeying for career moves, basically, and essentially completing a test that has taken them three years to actually successfully run. And yeah. they're down essentially to the wire. Like They have to get this thing completed in order to, I guess, get promoted and <laughs> move on up the Soviet food chain. Yeah. And Craig was saying that Dyatlov specifically was motivated to just get out of the control room. Like he wanted an office. That plays into what we've talked about before, this idea of power, this idea of prestige. In fact, I think it was Formin who casually just sort of leaned back against the wall <laughs> after everybody yeah. else left the office. 
I get that. I mean, I joke all the time about how I love my office at work and how it feels like the coziest place in the entire building because I don't turn on the fluorescent lights. I have lamps. I have comfortable chairs. But I really do take a little bit of pride in the fact that it's a quiet place that feels comfortable. And to an extent, it establishes a place of authority. It means something. The office, in air quotes and for real, is (laughs) something that has stature. When we talk about the Oval Office, there's something about being the president of the United States. Whether you agree or disagree with the individual in office, the Oval Office represents power. It represents importance. And I think for these guys, I'm not saying that office was like the thing, but it represented what they were trying to get to. And so you right. have Brukhanov trying to move up. And then Fermin was going to take his position. And then at some point, Dyatlov, because of being able to run a successful test, regardless of what happened, they were motivated to get it done. So early in the episode, we find out that It was not just what we find out later in the trial, but it could have been prevented. And that's one of the biggest shocks that I got from this episode is that this whole thing could have been prevented if they had just said, safety first, let's not do this now. Exactly. Yeah. Pripyat would have been just where it was and we would have not been talking about this years later. Right. Despite this fatal flaw that we learn more about the specifics of during the trial, If it wasn't for their disregard for the safety protocols, that fatal flaw would never have even been an issue. It still was a problem. That still was a defect that needed to be fixed in all of the nuclear plants across the country. But they still were to blame in the sense that they, and Dyatlov in particular in this episode, comes off just horribly. (laughs) I kind of, I'm assuming This is how he behaved based on the eyewitness accounts that were recorded before they died, that this is his attitude. And just the way he was just like, let's get this over, throwing binders across the room and just and even leaving the room to like take cigarette breaks. He clearly, as you said, just wants to be out of the control room. He wants to be in another building, in an office, in a higher level of power. And he just wanted to get this thing done with all the workers clearly knew what they were doing was wrong. He was the only person. So if anyone should take blame, Dyatlov, in my opinion, is the one that is most responsible. At any point during the testing process, he could have said, okay, we can't do this tonight. I'll tell my boss tomorrow morning why, but we can't do it. But he just kept pushing them at every sign, every warning that was going on. He was just like, okay, just keep going. Yeah, and I look at that in light of some of the other themes from the episodes regarding the power of the Soviet Union, the perception of this country. This episode really highlighted the individual arrogance of people because none of what I saw from Dyatlov, from Brukhanov, or from Fermin were anything connected to the power of the Soviet Union. It was all about them. Oh, totally. Yeah. They were even annoyed when they were told that the people on higher up basically told them they couldn't do their test because of production quotas that had to be made during Mm -hmm. the day. They were at the end of the month, and that's why they had to delay the test till the overnight hours, essentially, when most people are sleeping. So they didn't seem happy about that. They were annoyed with the powers that be directing what they can and can't do regarding the safety and timing of their tests for their facility. 
and it's very connective because I think as human beings, we get impatient. We feel like, Hey, somebody's cutting into my opportunity to shine. Right. I can cut corners. I agree. Dyatlov is terrible. (laughs) and He is depicted in a pretty accurate way. These were the eyewitness accounts that are documented. Talk about how he can be very much a, he was a person who berated even after the trial. He really never changed. Which is horrible, which is even worse. It's like he took no responsibility at all at any point. And granted, he did die, but he lived longer than almost anybody (laughs) that was directly involved. I think he died in prison, it said, at the end of the show, like in 1996. So he lived about 10 years beyond the event. I want to say at the very beginning of the first episode, Legasov mentions that what Dyatlov had was fair but that he wasn't the only one to blame. By the end of this episode, I was like, nope, you can blame him for everything. I know that that, that's not the case. And at the trial, Legasov makes a fantastic monologue about this. But the fact is, Dyatlov was the linchpin. I mean, he was one of three, but he was the linchpin, and he had the most control. And so many opportunities to, to prevent the fatal flaw issue from ever to becoming an issue. He just didn't care. And the fact that in the courtroom, you can clearly see that he he has no remorse for what has transpired. He doesn't think of himself as the bad guy, quote unquote. He clearly believes there's something else to blame. And he isn't wrong. There is another, as as he finds, because he even says that at one point, you know, you know something, you know, there's something else that you're not telling us. And then, of course, we, we get to hear it. Yeah. When I watch his body language, I think Paul Ritter is the actor's name. I think that for someone to be that cold, for someone to Mm -hmm. be that just dismissive of everything speaks to a fantastic performance. I mean, everybody's performances were great in this, but in this particular episode, what we suspected at the very beginning in that conversation in the bunker with him and uh, one of the other workers who said, no, it exploded. We were like, Dude, you're just den- you're in denial. I mean, he believes the lie. He absolutely believes that he did nothing wrong. I mean, there's a pathological yeah. influence here where he does not at all think that he did anything wrong. There's no rem- there's an amorality. Right. No remorse, no empathy for any of the mm-hmm. of the people that were clearly suffering from radiation burns right in front of him. Like he just had no he took no responsibility. Yeah. It's just yeah. It, terrible is what it was. <laughs> yeah. So at the trial, we get a lot of information. And I mean yes. a lot of information. Now, this was not how the trial went. Craig Mazin on his podcast said that the trial itself was pretty boring and it lasted for a long, like weeks at a time. So <laughs> right. what we got was really for our benefit. We were the jury. We got a show trial. We got a show trial. Exactly. We got a show trial. So I just wanted to kind of open this up for questioning. I want to ask you some questions, <laughs> if I may approach yeah. the bench. You what may. were some things that you pulled out of this whole section that you didn't know in terms of you know what the trial revealed? Well, first of all, the whole use of models and sort of visual aids was incredible. I thought the use of the blue and red cards to show how a nuclear reactor creates balance was tremendously helpful, even though they were in Russian and I couldn't read them. (laughs) 
I could understand clearly what they were saying in English. So I, I got it. I, I mean, this is a very complex topic that most people will never fully understand, but they were able to explain it in a way that I got it. I did. And yeah. also like when they showed the cross section of a miniature model of the whole plant and showed like where the reactor was and how there are three diesel generators here that, you know, connect in if necessary. And like, they just really did a tremendous job. It really actually reminded me of, I remember back in 1997 when the movie Titanic came out, I remember reading Roger Ebert's review. It always stuck with me because he said that one of the reasons that movie was so successful in his mind was because of what he said was an ingenious story technique that he used where he, early in the film, used a computer simulation of the Titanic's last hours in the present day scenes where Bill Paxton is hunting for the ship. And what that does, he says, is it doubles as a briefing for the audience so that by the time we see the ship sinking, we already know exactly what's happening from a sort of scientific standpoint, like how it breaks, how it sinks, how long it took all of that so we can just focus as the audience on the characters and the drama that's that's happening on screen. And that's essentially I think what they've done here is they've done a tremendous job in the show of educating us as the viewer to what happens. So when, when we see that full flashback sequence actually happen at that point we actually understand why and how it's happening. We're just seeing the drama for the first time. And I really found that to be one of my favorite scenes of the whole series is when they actually show us the event, everything mm -hmm. leading up in the control room, all the decisions being made. And then when they hit that AZ five button and we see the explosion, like they just, that becomes so much more powerful because we understand at this point, again, they could have shown that at the very beginning in chronological order, but it wouldn't have been as, been as effective. We know now all the players, we know now all the science behind it. We understand what led up to it. So it gives us all the context we need to appreciate the tragedy of that event and how and why it happened. It kind of makes me curious if anyone maybe has done this, done like a fan edit of the show where they cut the whole series into chronological order, kind of <laughs> to see everything played out in the, the order of the events to see if, if the show would play differently, if it would have a different impact. Because clearly jumping around in time is done for a reason and it worked really well in the way that they did it well i was reminded of the great storyteller christopher nolan <laughs> and ah, yes. specifically his one of his early movies memento yes and how he plays with time it's absolutely a theme of all of most if not all of his movies right where he uses time to tell his story memento is one of those things you're telling it out of sequence to create a disruption for a particular character and how an audience can feel that disruption. Memento is a fantastic example of that. This is the same technique, but I think used differently because what it does is it isolates certain kinds of feelings. So when we get to episode five, we've confirmed that Dyatlov is a jerk for a reason. He's not just being defensive because he doesn't want to be blamed. He is notoriously like that. Right. When we get the revelation that he actually was bullying his people all the way up until the moment of the explosion, it creates an aha moment for us as an audience at the end. And it makes us 
and our opinions of him not change. It just affirms them, but it affirms them in a dramatic way. So the way in which Mason has put all of these scenes together, you're absolutely right. You could probably cut these scenes together. And by the way, Memento on the DVD. There is a cut. There, yeah. There is a chronological yep. cut that makes sense. That's what's great about this is that you could probably effectively put all those scenes together. Right. From all five episodes. Yeah. All five episodes without the dog shooting. Just saying. You would get all that information. You're absolutely right. The information's there. And I think what makes storytelling so great is that as long as the information is correct, if you can thread it in a way that makes it more dramatic, put it out of order. Cre- right. Create your own drama from this. Seeing it play out this way, where we're asked the question in episode one, and for four hours, what in the world caused this? The payoff is so fantastic. And I think, again, it's like why we got in episode five, Pripyat before the explosion, because we can lean back into that nostalgia and say, man, that's awful because we know what happens. For me, when I look at the testimony of all three of them, the visual aids are fantastic. I also particularly think that Legasov's testimony stands out for obvious reasons. It's the longest. I think it's the most descriptive, but we hint at the tapes that he starts making. Now, we don't get the tape recording at that point, but we hint at sort of his conviction because he's processing this. He's processing, okay, I'm giving all the information that they already know. Do I tell them more? And this idea of conviction and how it plays in the story is very potent because for him, I won't say he doesn't care about his country. I think he cares about the truth, but I also think... He cares about the reputation of the scientific community, of about the world that he represents. Now, for the sake of argument, he doesn't represent the same scientific community that Komuk does. Like there's, he wasn't a, an expert in this. That's why she comes in. Mazin mentions that the composite character representative of like these 10 or 12 scientists really did have a lot more information and were advisors for Legasov. He had background, and so he was a credible source, right. but he didn't have all that information, which is why her presence in the show is so important because she was able to say, here's the technical stuff. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you got to tell him in Vienna. Here's what you got to do. Right. So watching him sort of struggle with that and then seeing him later beaten down by that government official. I don't remember his name. I don't know if he was... Um, was was he the KGB, the head of the KGB? Do you in remember the, in the little private room? You mean? Is that yeah? The, yeah, after that the was the was same. Over. The guy that was the, I guess the the head of the KGB. Yeah, the, that he spoke to in the in the hallway and kind of confronted in mm-hmm. uh, was it episode three, I think. But yeah, it yeah yeah it was horrible. Like he basically he seized him earlier in the episode when he gets kind of pulled into into the car off the street, and yeah. he's basically being told. That's what's so fascinating about that relationship. In that scene, he's basically being told he's going to receive an award for being a hero of the Soviet Union if he just continues to say what he said in Vienna. But here we are at the end of the episode where he's in a small room basically being told that he'll keep his job, but 
he's basically going to be stripped of any credit for any of the things that he did. Mm -hmm. And he's going to live the rest of his life basically in sort of semi-exile, you know, where he can't really Mm -hmm. do anything scientifically or accomplish anything, won't receive any recognition. So it's almost worse than death for him in a sense. And especially because he's going to die anyway. He received a critical amount of radiation. So if anything, all he wanted maybe was the recognition, the fact that he did the right thing. And ultimately, it seems like history has recognized him, recognized his contributions, because here we have a show, a, a miniseries, and we're talking about him and what he did. So it seems like it took 30 years, <laughs> but eventually his importance in this whole proceeding does come out. Uh, but going back to those other scientists that you mentioned, it mentions at the end that a lot of them had conviction, but ended up in prison or were losing their jobs or any number of other horrible situations. So there were a lot of people, I feel like, that were trying to do the right thing here. But because of the way the Soviet Union was run, they weren't allowed, essentially. It was, it wasn't, they yeah. were, it was falling on deaf ears. And I do think that the primary reason for all of them wanting this truth to come out was that there were other reactors with the same fatal flaw and they didn't want them to be left that way. They knew that they had to figure out a way to force their hand by publicly blaming the government, essentially, for causing this accident by them being cheap. (laughs) Essentially, it's what he says in the trial, that they cut corners, they're cheap, and that's why this accident happened. Something that you said, I was going to bring that up about the cheapness. Yeah. There is something fascinating about the simplicity of what the problem was. Right. (laughs) Or the origination. You want it to be complex. You want it to be some embellished thing, some unexplainable, how did this happen? And to some degree, there is a complexity to it because it wasn't just one man, even though we do blame Dyatlov for the most part. There were others. I mean, Brukhanov and Formin were definitely co-conspirators in that. The Soviet government for being cheap. But I look at those things and in and of themselves, they're so simple. The fact that the Soviet Union didn't want to spend more money on better products would have prevented Chernobyl from happening to an extent. Right. Again, I fully recognize that other factors go into this. It was a multi-part cocktail. It's like a perfect storm. You know, all these different things had to happen yeah. at the same time for the, this disaster to occur. So it wasn't any one thing, but when you put them all together, you have disaster. But to expand on that, it's not just any one thing. It's any one simple thing. Right. Dyatlov saying, let's hold off. Brukhanov saying, I've waited three years. I can wait a little bit longer. Done. Building these reactors. You know what? We need to take the time and put non-metal tips on these right. these rods. Let's, let's do that. Or not letting the experiment or the test get to the point they had to push the AZ-5 fail-safe button. Like... Just recognizing somewhere in between the beginning of that test and the end of it that they needed to just stop. (laughs) They needed Mm -hmm. to stop pushing it. And and it's so funny how Dyatlov, even up to the very last minute, is yelling at his men like, what did you do? Like, you told them to do it, man. Yeah. And that speaks to the phrase that we've heard several times. We did everything right. Right. I mean, yes. it, was, it was told at the very beginning. 
and that has a a greater meaning at this point mm-hmm. because you had one guy who had the instruction, the work instructions with redacted content. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? Trying to follow instructions with stuff yeah. basically <laughs> sharpied out. No way. This isn't like how to program a universal remote and you're just making and guesses here. And it's the night crew that's never even done this before. Like it's right. Like you don't even have your a team on it. You have your B team. That's just there to like keep things in balance at night. That's all yeah. they're there to do. So you've got, exactly. You've got these people who, when we hear them say we did everything right, this is a revelation for us in episode five. Right. Episode one, we're like, you're lying. You did everything right, right. whatever. You're just yeah. trying not to take the blame. No, they did. They did everything right. They followed the incomplete work instructions. They listened to their jerk of a boss. None of them did anything, quote, wrong, except cause the reactor to explode. Right. They followed orders. That's what if, they if did. Anything what they did anything wrong is that they followed orders. But several of them, as we see, try to push back. And he basically says, "If you don't want to work here anymore, you don't have to." You know, he's threatening them. He's threatening their careers and their lives. So they don't really have any other choice because ultimately, if any one of them said, "I'm not doing this," and leaves, he would just get somebody else to do it, or he would do it himself. Right. So it wouldn't have changed the outcome. Ultimately, Dyatlov was in charge, so if he wanted it to go down that way, it was happening. And no yeah. one was going to change his mind at that point. Well, and Legasov said at some point it wasn't going to change anything, even if he tried to change his mind, because so many of the wheels had been set in motion. Right. It was too far along. Yeah. It was too far along, and they had no failsafe. They had no backup plan as far as like what would happen if. And that goes back to what the show mentions earlier, which is this idea that there's no failsafe. There's no place in the construction of these reactors because the mentality of the engineers that reflects the mentality of the Soviet government, which is we are perfect. What could possibly go wrong? Right. And this is where I think the crux of this whole series is, is asking that question. What could possibly go wrong? Well, at the very beginning of episode one, there is an explosion and you think it's a roof fire and it's just this, misunderstanding all built on lies. And that's, I think the pivot point for Legasov when he decides to say, I've got more to say, I got to say this. And all of this Mm -hmm. of course is for dramatic license. I don't believe that all this happened because uh, first of all, Sherbina was not in the trial. Like he, what he sent a representative. So in real life, he was not actually at this moment. So him standing up for Legasov was dramatically amazing. And I want to talk a little bit about their relationship sure, here in a minute. Yeah. But when Legasov is talking about this, he says probably my favorite line in the episode. He says, every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. That is how an RBMK reactor core explodes. Lies. So he's mm-hmm. given the technical explanation. We've seen the visual aids. We're so kind of educated. We're smart people now. We're Sherbina. Right. After yeah. he's talked to Legasov, right. we now know how a nuclear reactor works. But at the core of this, pun intended, you hear Legasov say it's all built on lies. And the consequence of that is payment. And that payment comes in the death of innocent people who did everything right because they had no power to be able to stand up and say, this is wrong. And to me, that felt like the ugh moment. And I was like, man, if I didn't care about these people who died anymore now, I definitely do now. Because 
he's exactly right. The cost of life. What, yeah. what are the cost of lies? It's these 30 individuals that are, by the way, these still still the official record of what, 33 people. No, yeah. you're lying. <laughs> it still lies. But all the thousands of people who were exposed to it and who may have lived a life, but it was a life that was dramatically altered because of this exposure to radiation. Right. 31 is the official Soviet, they say, Soviet death toll. And, and that might be true in the sense that from that initial explosion, there may have been 31 people who died inside the building directly as a result of it or shortly thereafter in the hospital. Maybe that's true, but that doesn't take into account, as you said, all the, the radiation poisoning that occurred. And the estimates for that have a range of between 4,000 and 93,000. I mean, that spread, it's not like, oh, it's between 90 and 93,000. No, some people are trying to claim that only 4,000 people died and others say as many as 93,000. I mean, how can it be so all over the place like that? It seems, anyway, it just shows again how there are still, to this day, people in the no longer Soviet, but Russian government still covering up or lying about this incident. They're yeah. still not allowing, just like we may not ever fully know the truth about the JFK assassination, right? What really yeah. happened or what does the government really know? I feel like they're still keeping aspects of this out of the public eye. They're still keeping a lid on, like, I'm sure they know how many people have died as a result of this. It's just not something that they have publicly disclosed. And that's horrific. I mean, it's just horrible that they're still not taking responsibility for that and acknowledging right. that. Because they've yeah. these people sacrificed their lives to help clean up. Many of them were the people that were the ones involved in making the area safer again so that people could some people could move back as i mentioned earlier there's a song at the end and there's just a lot of information that through like title cards that we get in the last like eight minutes of the episode and it's fascinating information because after seeing the series all of that information makes sense to us <laughs> you know if we just saw yeah. the ending without, without any of that context we wouldn't really care but having seen the drama unfold through these five episodes, like the exclusion zone to this day is still contaminated. It's 2,600 kilometers, which is essentially about the size, I looked it up, almost the size of Rhode Island, the state of Rhode Island. Wow. Now it's a small state, wow. but still it's an entire U.S. state that is still to this day an area that you really don't want to go near. <laughs> it's yeah. insane. Yeah. All because of lies. Right. And as I've watched this series, I've Google mapped <laughs> everything yeah. around sure, Chernobyl because yeah. there is a city called Chernobyl that's independent of Pripyat, which is about 26 kilometers from, from the reactor site. But if you, if you do a satellite view of, if you look up like Chernobyl reactor four, I mean, this giant sarcophagus, it's like an eyesore that you can see from the sky right. and how it just looks compared to other reactors that are that are around there that obviously are, are not in operation anymore. I don't think they're still in operation. I think you mentioned that none of them are, are working, a, a, the other three are not. I mean, you would think that they wouldn't be able to operate them because you would have to have people getting too close to the explosion site. Although they did, as they mentioned at the end, build like a containment at a cost of $2 billion. They built some kind of containment structure over the, the site of the explosion. That's the eyesore. That's what you're, you're like, yeah. oh, it's, I mean, it's like this giant dome. 
dome. This metal yeah, like dome. A, yeah, this yeah. metallic dome that's that's covering it. It's not and a sports arena. <laughs> no, it's not. There's no there's no sports happening there. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Legasov and Sherbina. They're yeah. the pair that we follow for the most part. I mean, they're right. sort of pockets of, of other stories. Obviously, Kamuk is, is the other one. Their relationship is is really interesting because I know at the very beginning we talked about how they represented the science and the politician, and they still do. And while we see Sherbina standing up for Lyasov, saying, let him speak, while we see Sherbina doing a great job of showing the cross-section, I love his education. I mean, you know, going back to that first episode where he's like, I now know how a reactor works. It's so cool yeah. to see him sort of explain that this is what's going on. I watch them and I see how their friendship sort of evolved over the course of these five episodes. And according to Mazin, they really did have a good working relationship. I mean, they, he said there are pictures of them that he's seen where they're smiling. And you can tell, right. these are his words, you can tell that they were friendly. You can tell that they weren't just comrades, that they were friends. And the scene that really stands out that exemplifies this is when Sherbina, I think they're in Pripyat, and Sherbina's sitting on a park bench, maybe outside of a school, and Legasov comes around. Sherbina is basically questioning his self-worth as a political figure. He confesses that I was the guy that was willing to go. I wasn't the important one. I was the one who they were willing to get rid of. To part or, with, yeah. Part in other with, words, right. if, if he had been important, he never would have even been sent there. It's Which really, I asked that question. Yeah. I asked that same, I asked that question. I was like, why would you go in that yeah. helicopter knowing you're going to get exposed to radiation? Right, right. And we find out that it's because yep. he is expendable. That's the word I was looking right. for. He is very That's expendable. Yep. He says, I am an in consequential man wow <laughs> no you're and not he, and, and this is at a point where he knows from his doctor that he's dying you know he's got maybe a year i think he says a year maybe a year to live at this point so he's facing his own mortality as a result of this incident these guys clearly went through a horrific experience together and as a result they they have sort of formed a bond and it shows itself in this episode and i think it's interesting because in the beginning of the episode, remember when we were we were talking about how the KGB pulled Lagasov into the car and told him uh, that he was going to win the award? The KGB, head of the KGB, whatever his name is, I forget his name, but he says, you're getting good at statecraft, so, which is the art of conducting state affairs or basically being a politician. So he's becoming, as a result of their relationship, they both have become a little bit better at understanding the other's profession. Sherbina has certainly yeah. become more knowledgeable about the scientific aspects of a nuclear reactor. And as I said, he's becoming better at state, quote unquote, statecraft, at doing what he has to do to get stuff done, to make right. things happen. And so they have sort of come from two different spectrums, and now they've sort of merged into each other, <laughs> you know, kind of there's an overlap now. And they, they share that. A little of each other is in one another now. That's a, that's a great way to put it, that the fact that they have exposure to the other person's world enough to respect it, enough to right. value it. I really like what Legasov said in response to Sherbina's demeaning of himself. He said, who else could have done these things? They heard me but they listened to you. Right. You were the one who mattered most. And I think Shabina needed to hear that because his voice is what mattered. 
not just the information, but they trusted him. So this this idea of truth and lies, trust and distrust and misinformation really kind of gets put on its head in a small way in this conversation because Legasov is basically saying, as a politician, people listen to you. And on the mountain of lies that you could have held on to, you chose to speak the truth. You chose right. to speak what I was feeding to you and the information that you had. You didn't back off. You weren't Dyatlov. You didn't constantly deny. You came around for the good of the people. You are, and this is me talking, you are a pure communist. You are a comrade who cares about your country, not just as a political man, but as a man, as a human being. And I love that he validates him. I love that they both sort of validate each other in the way that you mentioned, that because they understand one another, because they have some common ground, they can both live a life that they would see as fulfilling. Legasov is not going to have a fulfilling life professionally. He has basically been excommunicated. And I think what the KGB guy said is essentially, you'll keep your job, but you'll just hang out in your office and play Tetris. You know, that's pretty much <laughs> right. what's going to be right. your world. You're not going to be a contributor. Yeah, no one's going to listen to him anymore. Well, any final thoughts on the show? I know you mentioned the end credits, which I thought were fantastic, this way to kind of give yeah. us a, a real-time summary. I was hoping for that. I was hoping for, yeah. hey, what ended up happening with these people? Because we speculated how far in the future are we going to go. The show expanded as the episodes came up, where we would go you know, one night, a couple of days later, couple of months later, and then finally, I think this last episode was a year after the fact. All the the cleanup had happened, and now we're just sort of maintaining. And so now we get into the credits, and we get to see kind of the aftermath. We get to find out that I think all three of the convicted, Dyatlov, Brukhanov, and Fermin, were all sentenced to hard labor. Yeah, for 10 years. Yeah. For 10 years, yeah. Fermin, actually, I think after... Was he the one that went, got to get go back to work? Like he got to go back to working it was in a... Fomin, I, was, I, think, I think it was him that ended up going back to work at a nuclear reactor after his sentence had completed. Yeah. I think that was it. It was him. Amazing mentioned that he had actually had some mental issues mm. as a result of all this PTSD, whatever. And so after he... I don't know if he served his complete 10, but either during or after that, he was transferred to a mental facility and actually spent oh. a lot of time uh, getting getting help. And I guess that obviously helped him enough to... To go back to work. Yeah. I mean, I was wondering if... I was wondering like, oh, maybe he got his sentence you know, commuted so that... Because they needed somebody to work at a nuclear power plant that had his experience. You know, I mean, these aren't dumb men. That's the other thing. They're smart people. They just ignored their safety protocols and they were more focused on themselves than the sort of betterment of the Soviet Union. And that's where it broke down, essentially. Yeah. yeah. I watched this episode twice. It's the only episode that I watched twice. After the second viewing, I realized that this is almost feature length. First of all, it's about six seventy six minutes all in and it almost works as a film in its own right, almost like a courtroom drama film. You could almost sit down and watch just this episode if you wanted to and have a pretty good sense of what happened at Chernobyl without 
the pre not I'm not saying not to watch <laughs> the first four episodes because they're fantastic. The whole series is incredible, but it's interesting that this almost works a self-contained piece of filmmaking because of the length and because so much information is revealed within the courtroom. So just like any good courtroom drama film, you know, a lot can happen in that courtroom where we get flashbacks and we get information that we get a sense of of understanding. And I think it accomplishes that in this episode. And uh, the other last thing I wanted to mention, just because I'm a big Star Trek fan, is that now after watching this, I better understand and appreciate how Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, is an allegory for this. And it always was meant to be, but I never really sort of thought about it too much because in that film, I don't know if you remember the opening scene, the Klingon Empire was supposed to be the Soviet Union. A moon called Praxis explodes due to overmining mm-hmm. and, and bad safety protocols, and it causes their whole civilization to go into chaos. And they have to basically form a treaty with the Federation to stay alive, you know? And so that all mirrors Chernobyl and the falling of the Soviet Union a few years later. And Gorbachev even says at the end of the of the episode, they mentioned that Gorbachev wrote in, I think, a book in 2006 that, that this, more than anything, was the beginning of the downfall of the Soviet Union. It kind of, it re- sort of revealed the truth about the fact that they aren't this perfect superpower, that they, that, you know, it's like a house of cards, you know, as soon as one thing is revealed, it all starts tumbling down. And this was sort of the beginning of that. Wow, I, I did not even make that connection. So now I have to go rewatch Star Trek Six with this event in mind. But well, like, exactly I remember, right. yeah, and I remember watching it as a kid. I I saw it in the theater. I remember reading reviews and people talking about it at the time because it was 1991. So it was just like a couple of years after the Berlin Wall fell, and it was very topical. And I remember reading critics talking about how it is an allegory or was an allegory for. Chernobyl and for the Soviet Union, I didn't fully get it as a 13-year-old going to see a Star Trek movie. I didn't fully think about it. And now, after watching this series and really kind of processing it, I'm realizing, yeah, that it's it's so true. They were really touched, just like Star Trek always does. It, it has a way of taking real-world events and sort of sci-fiing them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, making them digestible right. or, or palatable for audiences in a way that's, you know, sometimes very, it's just sort of, it's just hidden in plain sight. So you wouldn't notice it unless someone mentioned it necessarily. But yeah, it's, it seems to be a really good allegory for what happened. Well, that's going to do it for us in this edition of an original series. I have enjoyed this conversation as I always do. We are done with Chernobyl. If you enjoyed this conversation, check out the Chernobyl podcast, the official one that came out as the episodes were airing. Lots more great information from Craig Mazin and and his perspective. In the meantime, we are done with this series, so be sure to check out our next conversation celebrating the world of long-form storytelling. Until then, I'm Patch, he's Adam, and we are out of here.